Good morning, folks. Really wonderful to have you with us this Sunday morning. Uh, and uh, a warm welcome to those who might be joining online, perhaps from school holidays. Uh, for some of you, maybe, who have already headed off, um, do keep in your prayers those from our congregation who are travelling, maybe away, over the next few weeks. Uh, it would be really handy if you had opened chapter 5. Uh, there's a lot in the passage, uh, and we'll only be able to, um, to work through parts of it together this morning, but it will help you and me, uh, if we have it there, open before us to glance down uh, and to look at. And as Lauren mentioned earlier this morning, uh, on the back of your service sheet, there's a little bit of an outline of some of the things that I'll be discussing and reflecting on today uh, with a little QR code that you can submit any questions or comments uh, if they come to mind that you'd like me to maybe reflect on a little bit later. Well, what do you imagine it might look like to truly honour God? What do you imagine it might take for you to truly honour God? Uh, God's people haven't always had a crash hot track record when it comes to honouring God in the way in which they worship Him, in the way in which they respond to Him. Uh, perhaps you can recall that moment from the Old Testament when they had a go pretty early on uh, and they came up with a golden calf, an idol. Uh, that was a terrible dishonour to God. They, they imagined in their own minds that they were honouring Him in the most imaginable way that they could, but they formed Him into the shape of something that was really just one of His own creatures, one of the creatures that He had spoken into being out of nothing. What they imagined was honour actually was the gravest dishonour. How to truly and genuinely honour and worship God was a debate that Jesus, you might remember, had last week, in last week's passage, with the Samaritan woman as they stood at the well. They locked horns together over this question of how it is that one might truly, genuinely worship and honour God. You might remember that the Samaritan woman said, uh, our ancestors said that we should worship and honour God here on this mountain in Samaria on which we stand, but you Jews say that if we really want to honour God and worship God, we have to do it on your mountain, on Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. Who's right? Uh, Jesus does go on to say, well, the Jews had it right, the right place in which to worship and honour God is, an, is in the temple, on the mountain in Jerusalem. And yet, Jesus goes on to say, you might remember, a time has actually come now when it won't simply be a matter about getting the right place or the right form of our worship if we want to truly honour God. To truly worship and honour God in spirit and in truth requires something more than just getting the place and the outward form right. What might it look like for us to truly worship and honour God? Is it possible to imagine maybe that we are honouring God only to discover later on that God doesn't see things quite the way that we do. At the heart of today's passage lies a conflict over this exact question. What does it look like to truly honour God the Father? Uh, have a look with me as our passage gets underway. It really just introduces us uh, to the situation that we find Jesus in, uh, in today's passage. Chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. That is, he's going up to the place where he said it's the right place to worship and honour God, to the Samaritan woman just last chapter. Verse 2, uh, Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, 
which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Uh, You might have noticed there that this morning's passage mentions those who were disabled, the invalids who lay around this pool just inside the city of Jerusalem. What lies behind this really is quite modern terminology of being disabled or invalid. They're not ancient words. It's not the way in which the Old Testament scriptures spoke about those who were lame or blind or suffering. In fact, what lies behind those words that we read right there are the very general terms that are used just to describe those who are variously weak or feeble, those who are suffering infirmity. It's a class of people, really, which the Bible says we all belong to. If not physically, then at least morally and spiritually. Now, we looked when we were working our way through uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, it was the same word that Paul said, used when he spoke about his own weaknesses and frailties of the flesh, when he spoke about our own incapacities to honour God in the things that we do and the way in which we live. And it's to one of these, one particular of this great multitude of weak and infirm people, that Jesus particularly addresses himself there in verse 6. If you have a glance down with me, he addresses someone who has been there in this state, we read, for 38 years. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him, this man lying there, and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Now, it's interesting to note that the man that Jesus addresses doesn't actually answer the question that Jesus had asked him. Did you notice that? Jesus asked, do you want to get well? The man never answers it. You think that must be the most easy and obvious question that someone could have answered in a heartbeat, but he doesn't say yes. He doesn't answer in the affirmative. It doesn't seem as if he actually hears an offer in Jesus' question. Jesus' question simply provokes him to express his own bottled-up frustration, a frustration centering around this superstitious expectation about the pool's miraculous healing properties. It seems that some people believe that if you got into the water as soon as it got stirred up, there was something about that moment that was sure to heal whatever illnesses or frailties or infirmities or weaknesses you brought with you to the pool. And this particular man is the most pitiful of all the pitiful. For he can't get himself into the water ahead of anyone else there. They're they're all the blind, the lame, the paralysed, and yet this man, out of all of them, is unable to make any progress in getting into that pool. The most he seems able to hope for is that someone might give him a head start in that mad scramble into the pool, that someone might be able to help him get ahead of the others find his way around them and into the pool and into the water first, ahead of all the other faster-moving 
blind, lame and paralysed people who were waiting at the pool together with him. Another curious thing, it's almost like these two people, Jesus and the man, are talking right past each other because Jesus doesn't even respond directly to this man's frustration at all. Did you notice? There's not even a word of empathy. There's not, a, as far as is recorded, any nod of understanding. Instead, Jesus just responds by pronouncing a word of command. Get up, Jesus says. Just as God had declared, let there be at the dawn of creation, creating all life, so here Jesus speaks life back into this man's legs. And he stands and he walks. Now, this man never does make it into the pool that he had desperately hoped to be able to one day get into. He never gets there. And I wonder if we perhaps sometimes also come to Jesus in a similar way, hoping for one thing with one kind of expectation, imagining that Jesus might be able to just give us that boost we need to achieve the thing that we think lies at the top of our list, our most needed, only to discover that he offers us something actually rather quite different. God will often work in ways and in means that perhaps don't match what we would expect or ask of him if we knew who it was that we were speaking to. Jesus certainly doesn't act as a consultant to help us execute our own self-rescue plans. Now, if Jesus had simply given this man a helping hand down into the pool, into the water, then I've got no doubt that this man would have been perfectly content uh, and that would have been the end of the matter. We would have been on to the next moment, the next situation in this record of Jesus' life and ministry. But instead, this very brief encounter escalates into something of a public controversy, really, isn't it? Have a look with me uh, at verse 9 again. Verse 9. Halfway through. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and to walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. What I find so striking about this little, next little moment in the situation is that it is not the healing of this man that grabs the attention of the Jewish leaders. They don't even mention it, not at any point. But simply the fact that this man is walking and carrying a mat. That's the only thing that seems to grip their imaginations, their focus and their attention the whole way through. Even after the man says that this man, Jesus, is my healer, it's only Jesus' command to carry the mat that the Jewish leaders seem to have any interest in investigating and asking questions about. Why might that be the case? When you've got a healing like that, why be fixated on a man walking and carrying a mat? Now, while Jesus' healing of this man initially seems to go completely unnoticed, his carrying of the mat on the Sabbath certainly sparks a sensational scandal. You see, the Sabbath day, that is the seventh day, the last, the final day of the week, was the one day on which God's people had been commanded to rest from working. It was the one day that they were to lay aside 
or their own preoccupations about their own work in order to commemorate and honour and enjoy God's work, to honour the work that God had achieved for them. Lay aside your own work in order to honour the work that God has done for you. That's what the Sabbath was all about. Um, those two readings we had about the Sabbath earlier on, you might have thought as we read them, why are we reading two of them? They're pretty much identical, a little bit repetitive there. But each highlights an aspect of God's work that Israel were commanded to over and over again recognise and honour and pay attention to. There was that work that God did of creation, of breathing into life, into being, all that exists, God giving existence to everything that is. And then there was the work of the Exodus. In the second reading, it was because of the Exodus that they were to have the Sabbath, to remember that work that God did, that saving work in setting Israel free from slavery under the harsh hand of the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. See, for God's people Israel, working on the Sabbath, that was considered to be a public failure to acknowledge and honour God's wonderful work for His people. It was considered to be a scandalous sign of disrespect to fixate on your own work rather than to marvel at and wonder at what God had worked for them as a people. And now these Sabbath commands were sometimes taken to the extreme, a bit like this man not being able to carry his mat. Uh, there are other rules that aren't in the Scriptures, but that various teachers said you should follow, including limiting the amount of ink that you might carry, writing ink that you might carry with you, to ensure that you didn't write too many letters or too many words that would constitute working on the Sabbath day. Things could get a little bit crazy into the, the degree to which they were stretched. And the thing is that all about all these different rules that were imagined and dreamt up, is that all that they did was fixate people back on their own work rather than direct people to wonder at God's work. And people like those who were complaining in this moment, in this event, they seemed to imagine that the more strict and stringent the restrictions they placed on their own working, then the more genuine their honouring of God would be. That's how they imagined things would work out. The more strict they were on themselves, the more honoured God Himself would be. But it certainly doesn't play out that way. The Jewish leaders viewed this man's unauthorised mat-carrying not simply as the breaking of a, a, an abstract religious regulation, they viewed it as a public refusal to recognise and honour God's work. And there's a real irony here, um, you've no doubt picked it up as we read through, that in their zeal, in their passion to protect the honour of God's past work by enforcing the Sabbath rules, they seem to be completely blind to the work that God is doing right there and there amongst them in the person of Jesus Himself. This epo episode has a, a pretty curious ending. I wonder if you noticed it. Uh, this small moment before we, we come to some summing up sections in the passage. Ha have a look with me again at verse 14. Uh, even after Jesus had disappeared into the crowd uh, without a word as to who He was, we read in verse 14... Later, Jesus found him, that is, found the man who'd been healed, at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. 
I wonder if you notice that the setting in this story, the setting has shifted from the healing pond where the blind, the lame, the paralyzed all congregated in the hope that they might be able to get into the water and restore life to their limbs. It's shifted, the setting has shifted from the pool to the temple, to the temple courtyards where sacrifices were offered, where people congregated seeking God's pardon of their sin. And Jesus, here at the temple, again seeks out the very same man that he had sought out back at the pool, that he'd healed earlier on in the day. Yet this time, it is not the man's lifeless legs that Jesus speaks to, but the man's soul. They're not words of healing that Jesus speaks in the temple, but words of judgment upon the man's past and, it seems, continuing present sin. It's tempting, isn't it, as we read through the passage to wonder whether there must have been some link between the man's sin that Jesus has rebuked here in the temple courtyards and his 38 years of paralysis, his infirmity. Uh, In John chapter 9, so several chapters after this passage, uh, John records another event in which his disciples ask him and say, that man who's blind over there, is he blind because either he or his parents had sinned? And Jesus' answer on that occasion was to say, neither. This man's blindness in chapter 9 has got nothing to do with any sin that he might have committed. And yet, at the same time, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we looked at this at the start of the year, Paul uses the very same word that's used here for the disabled, for the weak and the infirm, to describe those who become sick because of their unrepentant sin. The Bible does recognise that there are occasions in which our frailties, our sickness, is a result of our disobedience and sin. While we certainly don't have the required insight, you and I, we don't have the required insight to pass judgment on this particular man, to to be able to assess from the outside what relationship, if any, there is between his sin and his infirmity. Jesus speaks as one who does claim to know whether there is a link, someone who claims to know just as God himself knows. Jesus acts as one who claims to do what God himself is able to do. And Jesus really unpacks that in uh, stunning uh, form, in stunning shape in the next few verses. Have a look with me at verse 16. We read in verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, referring to everything that had come before, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only, because he, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Just as the Jewish leaders had harassed the man for dishonouring God's work on the Sabbath by carrying his mat so also the Jewish leaders now persecute Jesus for dishonouring God's work because of the things that he had been doing on the Sabbath. And by way of self-defence, Jesus objects, how can you accuse me of dishonouring God's work when it is precisely God's work that I myself am doing? 
They're one and the same thing, is Jesus' claim. When you see me working, when you see me giving life to the lame by the side of the pool, when you hear me passing judgment upon sin in the temple courtyards, these are the very works of God himself that you are witnessing in action. And recognising what Jesus is claiming, that he is doing God's work, they try all the harder to kill him. Uh, Jesus repeats this same key insight several times in the following verses. Unfortunately, we don't have to go, have time to go through in detail uh, the, the answer that Jesus gives. But let me just give you a bit of a snapshot about how he claims his giving life and his judging sin in his, is an expression of God the Father's own work. So there in verse 21, I'll have the comparisons up there on the screen. In verse 21, Jesus says, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. And in the next verse, verse 22, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Jesus' work of giving life, Jesus' work of judging is an expression of God the Father's own work of giving life and judging. I wonder if you notice there that word uh, that describes how the Father raises the dead. Uh, the word for resurrection there in verse 21, that Father raises the dead. It's the same word, effectively, that Jesus commands to the lame man as he lay beside the pool. Get up, rise up. John is wanting us to see that the power that was at work in Jesus raising the lame man is the very same power that's at work when God himself raises the dead. Or skip down a few verses to verse 26 and verse 27 we see the same comparison, the same parallel once again. Uh, in verse 26, just as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And then verse 27, God has given Him, Jesus, authority to judge because He is the Son of Man. Uh, the Son of Man there is a, a figure who's referred to in the Old Testament. You might remember Him from our time in Daniel last year, the Son of Man effectively was the one key figure in the Old Testament who was said to rule, to exercise the same authority that God in heaven exercised. Just as God the Father gives life and judges, so Jesus is saying, I as the Son give life and pass judgment. When you see me working, when you see me giving life, when you see or hear me passing judgment upon sin, Jesus is saying, it is the very work of God himself that you are witnessing. You Jewish leaders imagine that you're protecting God's honour by diligently enforcing the Sabbath no work laws, Jesus says. Yet when you fail to honour me, when you fail to acknowledge the work that I do, you are failing to honour God the Father who sent me. Have a look with me at verse 23 where Jesus makes this kind of point. Verse 23. Um, there, John writes, uh, Jesus speaks and says that it's God's intention that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. And this really stunning statement that if you don't honour the Son, you're not honouring the Father, brings us back to that question we began today with. What do we imagine it looks like 
to truly honour God. I can imagine that maybe a whole bunch of answers sprung to mind as to what we might say if someone to ask us, what does it look like to genuinely honour God? It's perhaps not uncommon for us to imagine that it's those who make the greatest financial and material sacrifices who honour God most genuinely. I wonder if you've ever compared yourself unfavourably, maybe, with other, another believer who has perhaps made sacrifices far more grandiose than you've ever made to support a ministry or to do some work in some far-flung place, and you've just thought, to yourself, I, I could never honour God as genuinely and completely as they do. But friends, genuinely honouring God is not a matter of, of how much we sacrifice for Him, but rather it's a matter of acknowledging how rich a life He offers us in His Son. It's acknowledging His Son that is the shape of what it looks like to truly honour God. Uh, I'm not that great at receiving uh, gifts and generosities from other people. Uh, one of my dearest mates always wants to pay for lunch or dinner whenever we go out together, and there's always that weird, stupid, awkward struggle about seeing if you can get the money in the in the bag or, you know, sneaking the pay up to pay the bill first. But who is it that honours you most when you show an act of generosity or kindness in giving something to another person? Is it the person who strives the hardest to pay you back? Is that who honours you the most? Is that who honours your generosity? The one who tries to sneak the money back into your purse or who struggles to return the favour just as quickly as they possibly can? Or is it the one who simply receives and rejoices in the generosity of what you had given them? Surely it's the second who honours your generosity the most, isn't it? And the same is true in our dealings with God Himself. Uh, I've read over and over again of church leaders who have suffered some great moral failure, whether it's sexual or financial or dishonesty or lying about themselves, who often have reflected later or even tried to excuse themselves and say, I sacrificed so much for God, I consider this one small thing was something that was owed to me. They perhaps had sacrificed much, but that great sacrifice didn't honour God, did it? When they considered that what God had offered them in His Son wasn't worth delighting in or trusting in. Or perhaps we're predisposed to imagine that it's those who outwardly display the greatest religious passion and devotion, that they're the ones who honour God most lovingly. But honouring God depends not on how much affection we can whip up within ourselves to direct towards Him. Rather, truly honouring God is a matter of recognising His love on display towards us in His Son, Jesus. It's to recognise and receive God's love in Jesus that is the genuine way to honour God. I guess it's not uncommon for perhaps some of us to imagine that it's those who maintain an uncompromising moral standard with the greatest eagerness and zeal that they're the ones who honour God most righteously. But righteously honouring God is far more a matter of humbly recognising our need of forgiveness that only Jesus has the authority to offer us than it is in imagining that we can honour God with our own moral strictness. 
what comes to mind is that parable that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, the Jewish leader, who stood up the front and thanked God for all that he was able to do, morally speaking, to honour God. And yet, who was it who walked away having honoured God? It was the man who stood up the back and beat his breast and called out to God, the tax collector who called out to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's not uncommon for people to imagine that it's those with the greatest scriptural insight, the greatest scriptural knowledge or fluency, that they're the ones who honour God most truly. In fact, I think that's exactly how the religious leaders of today's passage had imagined themselves. But even loving the Scriptures is no guarantee that someone actually honours God Himself. Have a look with me uh, beyond our passage that we read today, but in the same little section, to uh, verse 37. Uh, uh, Actually, sorry, I've got that wrong. We'll read down to, we'll read from verse 39. I beg your pardon. They're addressing the Jewish leaders, Jesus says, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. These very people who Jesus was speaking to had the most profound scriptural knowledge imaginable but none of that knowledge honoured God Himself because they refused to come to and to delight in the one that God the Father Himself had sent, the Lord Jesus. Whoever does not honour me, says Jesus, ultimately fails to honour God the Father, no matter what other good or beautiful things they might have devoted themselves to. Friends, if you're left wondering how it is that you can honour God the Father, don't go away with a checklist of things that you can perform and achieve in your own strength this week. But rather, turn your eyes towards the Lord Jesus and recognise God's love and kindness and mercy in Him. Honouring God is far less about what we imagine we might have to offer Him and far more about acknowledging and delighting in what He has to offer us in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray that might be true of us. Dearest Father, we do long to honour you. We confess and recognise that you are deserving of all honour, of all worship that we could ever have to give you. And yet, Father, we recognise that so often what begins as an attempt to honour you can so quickly turn into something that is designed to honour ourselves, to set ourselves apart from others, to set ourselves even perhaps above others. Father, we confess that such a way of thinking about ourselves does nothing to honour you or the Son whom you sent to save us in our weakness, in our infirmity, in our frailty. Father, teach us what it is to honour you by honouring and delighting in all that you give us in the person of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.